Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. And today I'm speaking with Stephen Drummond, owner-operator of Campaign Coach China. We're talking about working and living in China's heavily monitored internet ecosystem, market complexities driving brands to reboot tried, true, and timeless brand creative strategies, and why foreign brands must work harder now that the cachet of being foreign is quickly evaporating. Stephen, what is your favorite Chinese company and why? I think it's Mao Tai, which is a, a, a famous brand of Baijiu uh, rice wine. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think that they uh, have shown that you can have you know, super premium Chinese brands steeped in culture always justifies its price premium. You know, it just has such a rich heritage. So often you know, Chinese brands are derided but uh, if you look deeper into Chinese culture, there, there are these brands and they, they do extremely well and command big price premiums. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Stephen, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could come on. I really appreciate your time. Great to be here. So you've worked at some Blue Blood advertising shops with the JWT, YNR, et cetera. Could you talk just a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up in that line of work? I think I fancy doing the idea of advertising since my mid-teens, perhaps watching too many episodes of Bewitched and so forth. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I did my bu a business marketing degree in my home city in Adelaide. I was lucky YNR offered a uh, graduate traineeship to a to a prize-winning student such as myself, which landed me an entry-level job in the media department in the 1980s. Yeah, I was very lucky to get in. Yeah, it wasn't that unusual for Australians to head up to Asia in the uh, mid-90s. Sure. But Shanghai was an unusual choice in those days. But it, it kind of appealed to the Lonely Planet-style adventure that I was looking for sure. more than a more than a Singapore when I was that age. And I was lucky that uh, JWT Shanghai was looking for a planning director. So I had that, it was that perfect combination of the big brand of JWT, but then the, what was then the extremely exotic background of Shanghai and, and China. So, um, you know, back then it was about, it was about the adventure and riding bicycles and mm -hmm. the exotic market. But, uh, and then, uh, you know, business got bigger. So it became, more of a grown-up choice over time. For sure. Okay, so <laughs> where, are you, where are you sitting right now as we record this? I'm sitting in Shanghai in Jing'an District uh, in my WeWork office. In the WeWork, yeah. And I, it's funny, I left, I left Shanghai just as the WeWorks were starting to take over. Do you, do you know how many yeah. WeWorks in Shanghai now? There are 50 now. 50? Uh, five zero. It, it, 
Five zero. It Five is quite zero. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, that yeah, is, is absolutely yeah. incredible. I've yeah. been gone three years. Yeah. When I left, I think there was uh, about three in yeah. in I mean, 2016. It's just, uh, it's just it's just taken off. You know, and, it, and it's catering to all sorts of people. You know, from people like such as myself, more independent operators to small, medium-sized companies. You know, ten, fifteen people. But they are, they're also doing a lot of. Um, so white labeling management, uh, I, I see, I'm seeing more of that. How is internet and, and the use of VPNs, how much does that affect um, the ability to do business, do you think? I mean, look, uh, the reality is you just become acclimatized to it if you, if you work here. And you get, a, you get a big shock when you leave the country and everything works without a VPN. Yeah, it's something you get used to. Uh, you know, the Chinese uh, digital world, uh, obviously some connections with the outside world can be... Uh, Frustrating, but uh, on the other hand, there are amazing things happening. Uh, you know, every expat here has you know, readily adopted uh, WeChat and WeChat payments, and oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know the the local way of working. Uh, the local there are local uh, versions of um, DD Uber and Uber yeah. DD, where you know, and which, which is great because they they have English language versions. Uh, you know, the, there are a lot of positives that can sometimes outweigh a few a few of the frustrations. Uh, you are the owner operator of Campaign Coach China, which I, I I said off the top of the show, and I just want you to maybe explain to people what that is, what you do. Sure. Well, I, you know, after uh, 32 years in the industry, most of which on the agency side as a, as a strategy planner or agency. Because you started when you were five. Management. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> so you're not nearly that old. And I also spent uh, about five years on the client side at uh, Coca-Cola. Um, so at uh, my my vintage, it's you know it's inevitable that you got to try the next thing, which is uh, be a consultant. Yeah. And you know, so I'm, I'm um, I, I suppose I'm filling a small gap uh, when someone needs someone who's worked on both sides of the fence. Um, and uh, you know, I've been working with agencies. I've, I've been working direct with clients, and I've uh, on all sorts of projects. Um, which tend to be ad hoc uh, because of the way businesses are structured. They, they sometimes need need additional help. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I've, I've also recently been conducting a lot of training. Um, and oh, training yeah. is, uh, is is something I'm really, you know, hoping to develop more of. I've recently ran a two-day uh, workshop brand and creative strategy boot camp for uh, senior local clients um, and uh, through, through uh, food and beverage innovation forum. And, uh, you know, it's fantastic, the response, because, you know, the, the complexity of the market these days um, and the desire for local brands to actually improve themselves such that there is a real need for kind of rebooting some of the basic strategic planning tools and concepts which, you know which are for the local timeless companies. timeless absolutely so you know i was doing there were food and beverage mainly but including chamis and uh Wallogies and um a whole mix of uh, local companies i had uh, about uh, 40 
CMOs and uh, a few CEOs, uh, you know, learning about branding and brand building. Um, like I said, the, the, the timeless principles behind that because you know, now more than ever, I, I, and I, this is something I passionately believe in and it's especially important in China. Uh, with when everything is e-commerce based, when everything is tactical and uh, so much in China is reliant upon borrowed interest from celebrities or special events. Right. Um, yeah, there, there really is a need to, and, and local companies are recognizing this, there really is a need to actually work out, hang on, we can't just piggyback or rely on borrow, borrowed interest. We, we need to develop our own brand and our own brand identity. Uh, how, how the hell do we do that? So, um, so I take them through a, a, a structured series of modules that, uh, really, you know, really are very much building blocks of good strategy uh, and smart strategy. So, I just want, I want a hundred percent clarity. That is for local Chinese companies. Well, I, I, you know, I have been doing it for agencies, the international agencies. I've been doing it for local companies. Uh, if it's big multinational agency uh, companies, they, you know, Unilever's or PNGs probably have their own their own training programs, and they're, they're probably very good at that. And um, but are you so, do you but bring I'm, a cross cultural component to it? Yes. So, uh, you know, and, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to food and beverage people, they're obviously interested in the fact that I worked for Coca-Cola. So sure. they, they want to get some inspiration from, from that experience. Um, but, you know, I, with, I can see the same thing with financial services and with the automotive market here. Yeah, there, there's still a uh, big desire uh, from the local side to learn about international standards mm -hmm. in developing yeah. brands. I have found that a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uh, companies, local Chinese companies, they're excellent at manufacturing, right? Manufacturing, yeah. distribution, all the tactical and operational, right? And so they're really, really, really strong on all of that. But I think when they need to start thinking uh, cross-border, uh, if they when they start to think about brand and brand loyalty, now it becomes about experiential. Yeah, I, look, uh, honestly, I think it's even more fundamental than that. Uh, you know, I agree. I agree with what you're saying, but uh, I think uh, you know, local brands, uh, as you said, have done an excellent job on improving their product quality and their their basic perception as delivering a, a reasonable product. But they're still struggling conceptually with the idea of brand and and what what a brand means and how to develop that. Um, like I said, the the default thing has been to go for borrowed interest, usually a, a celebrity, um, but uh, uh, like an influencer yeah, marketing they, play. Well, influencer marketing or big celebrity. You know, um, if you're talking about larger companies, it's, you know, uh, literally the same bucket of uh, uh, 50 celebrities that are shared around <laughs> almost all the brands in wow. China. I mean, you know, you know, I mean it's, a, it's a big problem that they, they do have and they're increasingly recognizing it, that they can't rely on that. You know, having celebrities is great. I, I, I just think uh, the problem in China is people... 
brands here rush to the tactical. Uh, and I would I would consider which celebrity is right for my brand to be a tactical choice. It's an executional thing. It's not it's not a strategic thing. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, that that kind of exposes the gap in understanding and the opportunity for local brands to improve. And, and look, let's face it, it it's a it's a natural organic uh, evolution that bigger brands in China are going through. First, first they had to pick, fix the product side of things. And for the most part, they have. Uh, I think uh, you know, now they're getting awareness and, and they're, they're learning over time. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, obviously there's a priority. You get the product right and you get basic trust levels uh, and then you can start to develop a, a genuine brand with, you know, powerful uh, implicit uh, emotional values. That's something that most companies here are still struggling with. I want to ask if you could think back over the last five or 10 years, because I know you've been there over 20, um, but over the last five, 10 years even, or even if you want to go back 15, to draw out and look for some of the things that you can point to that show specifically this this evolution, how they have grown up, how how has business in China changed over the last five or ten years? Um, anything that we can specifically point to, then potentially even be able to extrapolate off of for those that are kind of looking forward and want to have an idea of well, an understanding of where did we where have we come from in the business environment of China. Sure. Look, uh, one of the most fundamental changes in you know the last decade or decades has been um, the grey area now that exists between foreign brand cachet and local brands. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it used to be a, gi- a giant chasm. I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm talking whether it was uh, Lux Bar Soap or um, toothpaste. Uh, Colgate toothpaste, whatever you know. Yeah. Foreign, foreign brands used to be a big deal. Local brands all used to be, yeah, you know, cheap and cheerful. You could, you'd still buy local brands because they were accessible. Foreign brands are all expensive and had some status. You've, you've now got this uh, grey area, which is, you know, the, the foreign brands have actually, you know, come down in price and made themselves more relevant and accessible culturally and in price terms. Local brands have, have upped their game in improving product quality uh, and the, their overall marketing standards. You know, they may not be there yet in terms of fully developed brands, but they've improved. Yeah, but you've also sure. got, you've also got this. You've also got the the big area now where you've got you know prestige brands. You know, a lot of Mercedes models or BMW models are built in China. Uh, you have uh, a situation where you've got some big brands, you know, a big competitor of uh, Quaker Oats is Sea Mild. And everyone knows that Sea Mild is um, a local brand, but the product's got a big kangaroo on it because all the ingredients come from Australia. Uh, you know, and the same with a few. So this, this, this whole, I worked out once there are six different categories of different cross-ownership uh, local brands owning owning uh, foreign ingredient sourcing, or mm. yeah. So to so, so, to the consumer now, it's just become less of a less of an issue, unless it's in unless it's in high end luxury. Yeah. So 
you, you basically have a situation now in China where that's been one of the biggest dynamics that, that foreign brands used to rely upon. I was going to say that. I mean, now they have to work uh, for, harder. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you cannot rely on on any sort of real uh, foreign brand cachet. Now, you know, it depends by by category. Obviously, if you're talking uh, wine, uh, you're looking for something with French or Australian provenance uh, as a quality reassurance or for, for luxury brands. But apart from that, when you're talking about general FMCG brands, um, uh, or, you know, it, it's just become a case that the locals have, have are matching, if not outdoing, the uh, international brands. Right. And, and, and you know, they, they can also get things like better distribution, you know. Uh, oh, sure. Which is, which is still one-on-one marketing in China. You know, forget the advertising, get your distribution sorted before you even think about, uh, yeah. think about anything else. No, 100%, um, yeah. So, so it's much more of a level playing field. It's category by category too. You know, um, you, can, you can talk about okay, household paint, but you know, every category here has got a its own story. And household paint in China, the local brands used to be dangerous. You know, they were full of full of lead and yeah. You know, so, so uh, obviously, baby milk powder and and, and yeah. dairy has got a different story. But uh, you know, you talk about other categories, and people people are they can't see any particular value in uh, being a foreign brand. Right. Toothpaste is a toothpaste is a big one. Um, yeah, Chinese toothpaste didn't have fluoride in it until about 1997. Um, so that, that disproves the idea that fluoride was a communist plot. There you go. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, Colgate and Crest came in on a huge wave because it's all, all health and, you know, linked to the child. And, you know, they were power, powerhouse brands in the, in, the, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But, but soon the locals picked up their act. And, you know, now I think, you know, the, the, local, the leading toothpaste brands are, are local brands with, you know, Chinese traditional herbs. We just talked about the last, uh, you know, uh, the evolution. Uh, do you care to prognosticate about the next five? The struggle ahead is brand building in the digital e-commerce age. That that's the that's the struggle. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to see through my training programs a lot of recognition that this is an issue. Um. And uh, and where does brand building start? Um, and yeah, and you know, I, interesting thing is, I'm getting a, a lot more interest and in having a lot more conversations with people on the packaging side as well. Uh, sure. Big design houses, because at the end of the day, you know, well, well packaging used to be a poor cousin of. Um, Oh, uh, the, the big advertising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think even now, it's one of the few opportunities to see the face of a brand. Because in an, in an e-commerce landscape, while, while people are all excited about the, and, and rightly so about the possibilities with that, the reality is the e-commerce landscape is even more crowded than a giant hypermarket. Right. Um, and uh, you know your, your packaging face, whether it's in the offline or online, is one of the, the few areas where you can show your distinctive brand assets. Um, 
So, look, it, it's a big struggle. People are, are working out also whether to chase short-term tactical opportunities or should they start to balance that out with brand-building activities. Um, I, I don't personally think that that's, there should be a hard line between those two things. But um, yeah, if you look at the merchandising calendar of a, of a uh, big ch- big company in, in China. They're, it's it's built around seasons, special holidays, special events, and uh, special retail events. You know, like like singles days and, and stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And, 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 and you know, the, and which is great, and I think it's mandatory that they they do that. But at the other hand, you know, uh, it is in in effect all borrowed interest, and everyone's doing the same thing. Yeah. So, so these are the, these are the struggles ahead. Uh, the optimistic side is, um, like I said, yes, I, I'm seeing a, a bit of a shift away. I'm seeing more multinationals and more uh, in China start to drift away and say, look, for us, uh, it used to be about the long game. It used to be about building brand, and one day in 20 years' time, we will make a profit. It'll be fantastic. They've given up on that. <laughs> mm. The big, big multinationals say, "Forget that. Uh, get, let's get some profit in now." Um, so uh, you, you're starting to see some uh, wavering on the on the side of the multinationals about the longer term potential for uh, China uh, yeah. increasing. Yeah, you know, they're, they're tired of. Uh, taking losses in China for the for the for the big maybe that will be huge in twenty years time. Sure, that, it's a risk. That level of level of patience is gone. One final question: What is your best piece of advice to our listeners, to companies um, that are looking to to come over to China? Firstly, I, I think you need to find very smart local people who can give you the inside running. Quite literally, I mean, almost like a China muse. You, you need that China muse mm. who can um, take, you know, give you the honest, uh, profound insights into Chinese culture and, uh, you know, whatever category you're talking about. Um, and, you know, it, it's people who will tell you the truth and not something that you want to hear. So those those people are, are very valuable. You know, I've, I've I been lucky it, yeah. To, to, to cultivate, uh, you know, friendships and partnerships with, um, you know, Chinese, Chinese uh, most of which, if I, if I make a comment about now, I, I, what if we do this and, and the, you get this look in a flight? No, it, won't, <laughs> it doesn't work like that in China. And you need those people. Yeah. You need people to give you the honest, the honest answers, the, the straight up things um, and pull no punches. Um, Secondly, don't try and cut and paste established developed market marketing strategies or, or especially not advertising campaigns for China. I've, I've seen so many people come in uh, from the West very with great arrogance saying, this is it. We know this. We know soup or we know energy drinks or, you know, we've done it all before. You need to build in some flexibility, uh, a lot of flexibility to accommodate local local attitudes and values. Um, and remember that your well-established brand in your home market can be something entirely new for China. 
So people need a bit of time to get to know what you do and what you stand for before you, you're hitting them with uh, your highly developed, quite westernized advertising campaign or, or marketing strategy. People who rush in and try and cut and paste uh, inevitably fail. Stephen, this has been excellent. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.